from Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Fino Radin, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. This week on the show, we are traveling to Switzerland. Hi, my name is Martina Heidvogel. I'm a media conservator and an educator at the Bern Academy of the Arts. We've heard the Burn program come up a few times in the show so far, as for a long time, it was really the only formal conservation training program that had time-based media as a specialization. Martina now co-directs that program, so suffice it to say she's kind of a big deal. She's also a dear friend. Martina and I are sort of part of the same generation of time-based media conservators. And back when I was a conservator at MoMA, Martina was a conservator at SFMOMA. And we had the opportunity to collaborate on all kinds of cool stuff like matters in media art. And probably the most fun thing we worked on together was preserving over 100 floppy disks belonging to legendary graphic designer Susan Kerr and setting up remote access to emulators for curators at MoMA and SFMOMA to browse through these. Now, as we've also heard on the show in past episodes, SFMOMA played a major role in the development of the field of time-based media art conservation. But when Martina arrived at the museum in 2011, she was their first art conservator dedicated to media. It was just such a treat to sit down with Martina and hear all about her training as a conservator, the work that she did at SFMOMA, and now the deeply important work that she is doing as an educator training the next generation. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. Quick reminder before we get started, though, if you cannot get enough of the show, I recommend clicking the link in the show notes to our Patreon, where our lovely community of supporters enjoy all kinds of extra and exclusive and behind-the-scenes content. Hope to see you over there soon. And now, without further delay, let's dive into this week's chat with Martina Heidvogel. My dad was a car mechanic and my mom was a kindergarten teacher. So we did go to museums, but it was not on this like upper level class kind of situation. I was interested in art and art making. In high school, I took these art classes and I don't know how it came to be, but one afternoon our art teacher pulled out this old oil painting that I think they must have found in the attic or something and it had a huge hole in the canvas and so as kind of a group activity he sort of guided us through quote-unquote conservation treatment of this painting where we I mean now in hindsight it you know (laughs) was not at all anything close to what I afterwards learned in school. I don't want to say it was the artist version of a conservation, but it was a very, you know, it was patching it together, literally. I think we added a patch and then we were mixing colors on the front. And, you know, at that point, I knew nothing of reversibility or of the materials. And it was almost a very playful way of approaching this. And as I was mixing the colors, my teacher came over and he was like, oh, wow, you seem really talented. Well, you should look into conservation. And that's when I heard about it for the very first time in my life. I was never exposed to that profession. And I did look into it at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. And it's a five-year program that ends with a 
the equivalent of a master's. And to sort of enter, it's a test. It's an entrance exam that involves submitting a portfolio of drawings, pencil and watercolor paintings. And I was drawing just sort of as a hobby. And so I, I had these drawings and pastels of mine and I went to the professor and he was, you know, I feel like he was very kind and he looked at them and he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, they're maybe a little too expressionistic for us. And then he closed the map and he was like, this is not what we're looking for. And that was the beginning of the summer. And then he explained to me what it was that they were looking for, for this portfolio. And then I found an artist who, I don't know why, took me under his wing. And the entire summer I was in his backyard drawing. And he made me draw the weirdest objects. He made me draw them really fast. I wanted to spend hours, like, <laughs> really nitpickingly, like, drawing. It was this technique that actually, you know, it was kind of a trick that teaches you to being able to look quickly and being able to translate what you see quickly into a brush stroke or a pencil stroke. So I was drawing an entire summer. I remember it was one of the hottest summers in Vienna. Yeah, and then I went to that admissions test and it was an entire week and we had to draw nude in both pencil and watercolor. And then at times they would pull us out for questions on art history and chemistry and some other tests of tactility. And I got accepted to the program and that's how I got into conservation. In the very beginning of the program, I think they do it differently today, but back then, at first, you would sort of be introduced to the different materials. We did some wood carving and we did an entire copy of an oil painting. Yeah, and at some point I felt like, hmm, I really like paper. And then I started out learning paper conservation. I think it was one and a half or two years in that there was a new program being established at the Academy of Fine Arts. And in addition to the sort of quote-unquote traditional conservation program, they established a program that they called Modern and Contemporary Art Conservation. And I got really interested in that. I think what interested me most was that there were challenges that were posed by the materials being used, the material combinations, sort of new frontiers to break. And that seemed really exciting to me. And so I kind of switched into this modern and contemporary art program. As part of that program, we had Johannes Queller, who was then the professor at the Modern Materials and Media Program in Bern. And he gave a guest lecture in Vienna for us students of the Modern and Contemporary Art Conservation Program. He brought these uh, large open reel videotape machines and then he put them on the desk and made the tape squeak. And with a video camera showed us how CRT monitors worked. And for the first time I was like, damn, now I understand how this video technology works. And I don't know why that was so fascinating, but it was. And after 
hearing his lecture, I was determined to learn with him. And I said, before I would graduate in Vienna, I wanted to go to Bern and be taught by him. And so because there was some, you know, logistics that had to be arranged beforehand, I could not go right away. And I had about half a year where I would have to wait. But in that time, I then went to a video editing class and I went to a video art history class and I took these additional classes kind of as a preparation before going to Bern. And that turned out to be really beneficial because knowing video editing programs is, is uh, kind of fundamental to then work with video. The way you were describing your attraction to contemporary materials, this like seduction of there being so many problems it's not like you know oh this is a very old painting and mm. it's slowly falling apart so that obviously makes a lot of sense that you would be drawn into time-based media when you arrive in Bern to study with Johannes that must have been amazing I mean it sounds like it was kind of your dream at the time it was yeah like I said he's such a charismatic person and I really wanted to learn and I think he was maybe also happy that there was a person coming who just soaked up everything that he was saying. And I was really lucky because at the time that I was there, he organized slash curated a video art exhibition in a museum in Lucerne. And he kind of enlisted all the students of that program to help with the preparation for this exhibition and the preparation for that exhibition that was so incredibly cool to experience that because one student basically did the whole registrar work by compiling all the components necessary for each of these works the way he had envisioned that show was to show the works with their quote-unquote original technological materials the artworks were mostly from the 70s and 80s and if it was shown originally on umatic tape recorders in the galleries, could not imagine that today, then he would try to get six umatic tape recorders and we would create exhibition copies on umatic tape. And that's how it was shown there. Whether it's really necessary to show works in this way or not, or whether art could also sort of overcome that original technological dependency from then. That's a discussion. It's really interesting. And today I have a different opinion than I had back then. But in any event, it was a really interesting exercise and an incredible learning experience. A lot of them, as, as far as I remember, hadn't been shown in a long time. So there was also this like archaeological approach of like okay how is this shown what is needed for that what are the components how is it being installed they had already worked on this in the previous semester and then I came in and we were digitizing all these videotapes and since you know in preparation for this exhibition this is all that we were doing and we did that at times until 10 p.m. at night. It was me and Johannes with these old video machines and I learned about video signals and time-based correctors and then we digitized it and were digitally restoring the footage in Final Cut 
and then exporting it. And back then we were still working with DVDs and I did experiments. I'm like, okay, how do you go from this uncompressed video source to a DVD and how does that look? And so I had this amazing playground of working with these video artworks coming from tape that we would then show in the exhibition. And then at the last part of that semester was actually installing these works in the galleries and then there was an opening and so I was really lucky to be there while this was happening and I learned tremendously and I mean it was an incredible luxury spending this much time with him and sort of soaking up all this technical information that he has and so with all this now in my back pocket I went back to Vienna to graduate and for graduation usually students pick a more comprehensive project and in most cases I would say it is connected to an artwork that has a certain issue and then as part of your thesis you sort of document the artwork what is it what's the artist's intent and then you propose a solution I mean that's maybe in a nutshell and so For my diploma thesis, I was working on a Dieter Roth audio installation and it was one that he did with his son Björn Roth and it was called Keller Duo and it was this like grown wall sculpture that had wood and paint and all sorts of little gimmicks and instruments. It had a keyboard and two violins, equipment. It had several tape recorders. It had cassettes. It had microphones. Everything was painted over and glued over and the cassette recorders were glued into the sculpture. And, you know, it was grown over time. It was sort of installed in one of their houses and I think his son told me in the interview that every time they would walk by, they would like glued something on there so it was this almost like live-in sculpture and then at some point it was acquired you know and then with this acquisition it sort of changed that dynamic so what my challenge was or what I was looking at for the diploma thesis was that none of the audio equipment none of the cassette recorders were working anymore And if you have a cassette recorder sometimes and if it's like really considered playback equipment, if it has mostly a functional status within an artwork today, we consider exchanging them or, you know, even migrating to a digital technology. But with this artwork, because everything was so glued in and painted over, you could not do that. It was not possible. So this was sort of the challenge ahead. And there were sort of exhibition copy cassettes that visitors were invited to select and put into one of these cassette players and then they could play along on those musical instruments. So it had this interactive, let's play music together. You could record on these exhibition copies. He manipulated one of the cassette players. He disabled that function that you would erase over the tape as you re-record and so he created these like musical layers or that was sort of the concept behind it that different people at different times could then in a way jam together as they recorded layers upon layers onto existing footage without the below audio being erased 
So that was the challenge. And I had incredible help. And that was all already in a way foreboding of as a media conservator, we work in collaboration with technicians and scientists and in an institution with curators and registrars. So Even in this little master thesis that was in a way in its little vacuum at the academy, I was already working with people who knew their ways around the technology of these works. I had help with the digitalization. I had help with the cassette players themselves. And so I was working with this scientist and I don't even know whether he was a physicist or an engineer or maybe both. And I went to him and I said, I want to sort of preserve this interactive part, the selecting a cassette and putting it in. And I should say it was a private collection. So it's not that you had like a thousand people come by, which is also why we were sort of able to even consider this approach as much as a proof of concept that it was. To have sort of fake exhibition copies and use RFID chips within these cassettes that would sort of identify a given exhibition copy. And as you put the cassette into the player, there was an antenna sort of hidden in the player that would then detect that RFID chip and another switch underneath the play button of the cassette recorder would then activate that particular audio track that was connected to that particular RFID chip and then play back that audio track from a computer which you know you could connect to the speakers within the installation i mean we did not implement it it was sort of a concept that we experimented with and we tried and only to see whether it would work and it was successful in our experiments and our tests but you know that was this one solution and then we also considered just adding A playback machine sort of on the side that was visibly added at a later date where this interactive portion of the installation could take place and happen. I think I visited one last time after I graduated at this collection and back then they had just plugged an mp3 player into one of the <laughs> cassette recorders and maybe that shows that yes at the end of the day whatever solution you propose also needs to be practical and easily maintained by staff in the collection. Mm -hmm. So th this is how they decided to then present the work. Wow. I mean, but what an incredible <laughs> student project. So after that big diploma project and your paper, what happened after graduation? After I graduated, I was sort of doing some project here and there and maybe it's just me but uh, it's a very existentially loaded moment after graduation and I didn't have like a solid gig at that moment which made me a little worried and during that time I went on a snowboarding trip with friends and as it often so happens when you're sort of <laughs> in, in a weird mindset I broke my leg on this snowboarding trip and so sort <laughs> of bathed in uh, self-pity with my casted leg <laughs> upwards. I came around the SFMOMA fellowship ad and I looked at this ad and I read through it and I mean, even before I saw that ad, 
I was like thinking about where would I want to be? What is the kind of job that I would want? And I knew that I wanted to work in an institution with a collection who would really seek out having somebody with my skill set and my specialty on staff. And then, um, I don't know, a couple days or weeks later, I saw this ad from SFMOMA and it was called Advanced Fellowship in Contemporary Art Conservation. And this fellowship is set up that anyone with a focus of contemporary art can apply conservatives or conservation-related field. And whatever their specialty is that they bring with, that's what their fellowship will focus on. And so if somebody has a paintings background, they will work with the paintings conservator while at the same time being immersed in the conservation studio and also collaborating with other conservation specialties as they're there. But one of the specialties that they listed was media conservation. And I read this ad and gosh, I was like, well, that is for some straight A student person. <laughs> That's not going to be me. And I closed the ad and I closed the computer and I went back to my <laughs> miserable, broken legged self. But it sort of got stuck in my head. Like I kept thinking about this ad and this position and I applied for the job and you know because of my broken foot a friend had to mail in the application and I remember I was sitting with my mom and we were having dinner and I was telling her about how miserable I felt and I didn't know what to do with my life and how I had no perspective when all of a sudden my phone rang and I saw the number and I saw somebody from the US was calling and I was thinking wow these folks are so nice at SFMOMA they even call to tell you that you didn't get the job <laughs> and with this energy I picked up the phone and uh answered the phone and I talked to and you know it was Michelle Barga who's now head of conservation at SFMOMA to tell me that I've got the job and I was so speechless and this is when I knew that I was going to go to San Francisco and that was at the beginning of the summer and the internship wasn't gonna start until September so in between I was really lucky to spend three months with Agata Jacek, who's a time-based media conservator. Now she's at the Guggenheim, but she has this video conservation studio in Bern. So before I went to San Francisco, I had an incredible fun summer working with Agata, digitizing videos during the day. And at the time I was staying in a house with a bunch of musicians. So <laughs> digitizing videos during the day and then going to concerts at night. And it's a really, really fun time and a lot of good memories. But at that time, I already knew that I was gonna leave at the end of that and then hop over to California. When I came to SFMOMA, I did not really have much of an institutional insight to conservation work. And when I was working with Agata, we were digitizing these videotapes with Johannes. It was preparing these artworks, but it was very disconnected from 
sort of a collection collection and also former conservation projects were these like contract work so i i was never really immersed or i never knew what it meant to be part of an institution with team with workflows so that was a big world that opened up to me coming to SFMOMA. And yes, I had the skill set. I knew my way around the video technology. But being part of an institution and the workflows around that and this whole machinery really of acquiring, lending, exhibiting works, that was all completely new to me. Once you're in an institution, it's never just you and the artwork. There's an entire team and there's opinions and there's discussions and there's considerations. And so that was one big mind opening for me coming to SFMOMA. And then Jill took me under her wing. I was incredibly lucky to have incredible woman as a mentor. When I came to SFMOMA, I felt like in German, we say the nest has already been made. So <laughs> you don't have to make the nest anymore. It's already built. And this is how I felt coming to SFMOMA as a media conservator. They didn't have a media conservator before I came on. But I think they had something that may even be much more important than having that one person who has that skill set. They had formed a culture around preserving these artworks. And this culture and this approach was built. It was really hard work building that. And it's thanks to people like Jill Starrett and Lena White who were working there and who I've had the honor to work with. So I came to SFMOMA and I felt like I didn't have to make a case anymore that, oh, you need to take care of these works. It's really important that we discuss these things before we acquire these works. Can we even support these works? What is needed to show these works in the future? I didn't have to make a case for that anymore. That had already been made and it had been made for many years. And I think if you have that, adding a person with the skill set then it's just you're set but the first part is hard today probably it is media conservatives coming on to institutions doing this kind of work i mean not to minimize my own <laughs> impact there but i was standing on the shoulders of some very hard-working women and people who came before me but you must have been like their wildest dreams because here you were a trained conservator and with expertise in time-based media, which is the thing they didn't have. So that must have been just for the whole team there, like, finally. <laughs> yes, but in a way it was, oh, finally somebody can do this research. Yes, maybe finally somebody has some answers, but you know what? We discussed a lot of approaches and treatments as a team. One of the pillars, I would say, of that culture at SFMOMA was around team media, this working group that has been built over time. And when I say over time, I'm talking early 90s. Back then, it was Jill Starrett who 
was a paper conservator at the time, a registrar and a media technician. And the three of them got together and were sitting down and were like, well, how should we deal with these works that are coming in and that are being now acquired? And how do we take care of them? This team grew over time. And when I was there, it was a group of 15 to 20 people that were convening once a month and had this forum of coming together and discussing questions regarding the media arts collection and coming together and discussing questions that could be very minor questions or bigger questions of collection caretaking. So it wasn't just my voice saying, okay, guys, follow me this way. It was like, you know, we were coming together and I had things that I could contribute, but I became part of that team and I relied on that team and it helped me with my work. And I'm sure my contribution helped them in their work. I was growing into that. This was not from day one. But I think one of the biggest compliments, the approach, I should say, received from Rudolf Frieling, who's the media arts curator at SFMOMA, he said, because I have this team that I can rely on, I'm able to consider even very complex works of art for acquisition, which otherwise I may couldn't. And that, I mean, think about it. If having this team on board does now open up the world of arts for curators and for acquisition. So I thought that that was a, an incredible compliment to this approach. Mm. Yeah. So you were at SFMOMA for eight years and it's really where you established yourself. But eight years is a long time. And I would imagine like things probably changed a lot over the years and I would guess you probably worked on some pretty cool projects. So I guess I'm curious, how did your practice evolve and were there some cool things you got to work on? Yeah, I think maybe when you're a student, you're really interested into the material and into the technology. And maybe that is reflected in my <laughs> diploma thesis and approach. And the more I spent time at SFMOMA and was immersed in that culture and I was working with artists and I was working with a lot of people around me, the more I got interested in that aspect of caring for works. How can we support people? How can we foster these really beneficial collaborative workflows within an institution? I know that was something that Jill was always really interested in and I was inspired by her in thinking in that direction and how do you work with artists how do you work with a team and how at the same time can you bring that knowledge and information that is being generated during these processes together and I could see for example how with our media arts department with team media and everybody involved there, we had worked together for so long. I knew exactly what this person needed to know to do their work. I, I knew exactly what that other person needed to know. And this whole, we were so good at working together. And so I think this is what I was immersed in at SFMOMA and 
I think, or today, I would credit that culture and this approach and, and practice in how this whole media wiki project came about. SFMOMA has done a lot of research on how can we document these complex artworks? How can we use our systems, the database systems? How can we break the silos in the museum? So there's been a lot of research done already at SFMOMA on that topic. And with media artworks, because they're coming together as you install them and as you turn them on and as you bring all these components into specific relationships, this is sort of when the art comes into existence. And as you take them down, as you deinstall and you put those components back on the shelf, in a way, the art is not in existence during that time. You know, you cannot just pull it out of a painting rack and there it is, there's your painting. And as you see it there, you we'll see it in the galleries all but with media artworks as you put them on the shelf they sort of come out of existence and because you have these many different components that you put into a relationship and this relationship may even be with the room that you're in with the site that this certain installation is being installed there may be a certain variability to these different iterations so a work may have very different instantiations over the course of its lifespan. So this was all a long sort of way to say that documentation plays such a crucial role within media conservation. And, you know, you've been part of, of exhibition installations. There's a lot of decision-making on the floor. You have preparators, you have media techs, you have curators, you have the artists present. So there's a lot of decision-making and you learn about the artworks as they're being installed. And now where does all this knowledge go? And so this is how this whole idea of a platform that many different people within the museum can access and can download, if you will, all that that, that they've learned about the art and thereby creating these like very comprehensive documentation records that are readily accessible within the institution on the browser that you can go to, you can stream the video, you can read about it, you can listen to an interview. As you research, you can really immerse yourself with everything that's connected to this artwork and that is being captured within this wiki system. And Mark Heller, who's been a long time collaborator and consultant for SFMOMA, he and I worked on a lot of software-based artworks. He was was instrumental in putting this platform together and that was one really interesting project and what interests me so much about this project is that it's at the same time about people and how people use it and the workflows that it supports as it is about the technology and not losing sight of what it is that we do when we install art and when we work in a museum, what is at the forefront of that so that it's not the technology, but the technology takes this supportive role. And that's what made this project really interesting to me. 
so in a kind of like really beautiful, I think full circle way, you, after your eight years at SF MoMA, took all of that that you had learned and built and all of that real world expertise (laughs) and reality and you've now brought that back to burn and you are now a professor in the program there where you spent some of your early years so i was curious if you could share with us maybe a bit about the program like what are the courses that you're teaching and yeah what's that like yes my way was leading back to burn where you know, in a way, it was the last station before I came to SF MoMA. So the Burn program is one of the first programs to teach media conservation specifically. And this media conservation program is nested in a contemporary art and media program. It's called Modern Materials and Media And the two people I've mentioned earlier, actually, already, you know, being part of my life, Johannes Gfeller, he was instrumental in founding this program, this media program specifically at the university in Bern. And then his successor was Agata Jacek, who is now at the Guggenheim Museum and who has been, I would also say, my mentor in the past. And so... Coming to Bern, there's, for me, there's these quite large shoes to fill. And uh, yeah, but it's really exciting. So our program is a bachelor master program. There's three years bachelor and two years master. And in the modern material and media specialization of that program, we have about 25 to 30 students all together. I'm co-heading this program together with my colleague Martina Pfenninger-Lepage, who used to be at the Academy of Arts in Vienna. And we've been looking at the curriculum and what we've been doing in terms of making some adjustments was, on the one hand, in the media area, bringing in the more digital-based art, some coding. So also have these like very new frontiers that the media conservation field sort of dealing with, get these in into the curriculum, but also maybe in a broader sense, look at the classes and move away from this divide of like, media on one side and modern materials on the other side to a more holistic contemporary art approach. Having experienced two continents in a way, having experienced life as a conservator in the US and then coming back to Europe, I think something I'm paying attention to is how I can partake in fostering a discourse within Europe also really make this argument why it is so important to have conservators on staff within institutions and these media works especially software-based artworks they're so incredibly fragile they're the most fragile works a collection can have and Looking at institutions in Europe, I see a big need to fostering that discourse and helping bring awareness how much institutions can benefit from having a person 
on staff and saving these artworks and making sure that they will also be available to future generations. And, you know, we were wondering, what is it that we as this educating institution, how can we help along that development? We organized a symposium and it was actually the anniversary of this program of contemporary arts and media at the Academy of the Arts in Bern. For this anniversary, we brought together experts from the field and hosted this two-day symposium on contemporary art. And it was a moment also to reflect on where we've come from, but also how our approaches have developed, how our practice has evolved and where we're going next and what the new frontiers are. And specifically, if we look at what the world is currently grappling with and we're, you know, we hear news about war and we hear news about climate change and then to reflect on what can conservation's contribution be to these large questions that our planet is currently grappling with or mankind is <laughs> grappling with. So it's this two-day symposium and yeah, it was uh, really cool to organize that. It was really great to work with these many different folks who are contributing to this conversation. We recorded all these talks and uh, please check them out, especially if you want to learn more about contemporary art conservation and what, yeah, what people are currently grappling with and thinking about and what they're challenged by. Wow. So I can't think of anybody better equipped to give advice to emerging professionals. <laughs> so, Professor Heidvogel, oh my God. I'm curious if you have any advice for, you know, folks listening to this chat who might be interested in getting into this field. I don't know if that's a, a super specific conservation advice or a general life advice, but it's uh, in retrospect has served me quite well it's like a platitude but don't listen to the people that say no or that doubt you if that's what you want to do do it and there will be a way I was told that you know I wouldn't be able to go to the U.S. they, they wouldn't want me there a person actually said that to me and hearing these things can be really discouraging and then the reality is just not it's just not true and I would say, do it, try it. And maybe there's a couple detours <laughs> and, and the detours are just as valuable as going straight. Well, Martina Heidvogel, my dear, dear friend, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and chat. You know, I've known you for all these years, but I feel like I know your story really fully now. So <laughs> thank you for taking the time to share your story with everyone. Oh, you're most welcome, Ben. And thank you for doing that. I mean, the work that you're doing here is an incredible testament and appreciation for the community. Oh, shucks. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this week's show. As always, if you want to help support our work and our mission of equitably compensating artists that come on the show, you can join us over at patreon.com slash artobsolescence. Or if you are interested in making a one-time tax-deductible gift through our fiscal sponsor, the New York Foundation for the Arts, you can do so at artandobsolescence.com slash donate. And there you can also find the full episode archive, including full transcripts and show notes, and 
last but not least, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at Art Obsolescence. Until next time, have a great week, my friends. My name is Ben Fina Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence. Thank you.